Hey everyone, Jason here. Before we get going, I just wanted to take a moment to give a quick shout out to the new paid membership option that we recently rolled out. This option is meant for people that have been getting value from the podcast and want to enable us to keep producing it in a more sustained way. It's also for people that want extra stuff, such as bonus content, a Slack room that's vibrant and filled with people tackling climate change from a wide range of backgrounds and perspectives, as well as a host of programming and events that get organized in the Slack room. We also have a virtual town hall once a month where you can get a preview of what's to come and provide feedback and input on our direction. We'll be adding more membership benefits over time. If you want to learn more, just go to the website, myclimatejourney.co. And if you're already a member, thank you so much for your support. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Adam Browning, Executive Director of Vote Solar. Since 2002, Vote Solar has been working to make solar affordable and accessible to more Americans. They work at the state level across the country to support the policies and programs needed to repower our grid with clean energy. Adam co-founded the organization in 2002 after he had so much fun working on a successful local solar ballot initiative that he decided to pursue solar advocacy full-time. He's been at the helm for 15 years and prior to that spent eight years with the Environmental Protection Agency where he ran an award-winning pollution prevention program. We have a great discussion in this episode about the history of solar, its importance in the clean energy transition, the progress that they've made along the way, both Adam and Vote Solar's work, but also solar in general, some of the barriers holding it back, some of the most impactful ways that we can make changes to accelerate the clean energy and renewable transition, and also Adam's advice for anyone else looking to get involved either in solar or other aspects of the fight. Adam Browning, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for making the time. I have to say it's a bit of a different world from when we first talked about scheduling this, isn't it? The world does not stop spinning and it has just started to, the stakes are so high and so much is going on right now. I absolutely agree. Really, the world has changed pretty quickly. Yeah, and just for context, since I'm not sure exactly when this is going to ship, but this is, where are we? We're in late September. Today is actually the fall equinox, September 22nd. So this is the date that summer is officially over. We're at that equipose where we're on the downslope to winter. Well, on that cheerful note, what is Vote Solar? Uh, winter is coming. Vote Solar is a nonprofit org really based upon the solution side of things. So we are a 501c3 public advocacy organization that is focused on really building a just and 100% clean energy future. So where there's a lot of advocacy around the no, we're about the yes. We do legislative, regulatory work, principally at the state level, to really build our clean energy future. And we're working right now in about... 26 different states around the country. And we've been doing this since 2002. So really nearly 20 years right now. 
and it's been quite a journey and we've had a lot of success along the way when we got our first start where solar was then to where we are right now we've really are also living in a radically changed world to go back to our initial opening statements how did this all come about for you how did you find yourself working in climate and solar to begin with what's your origin story it was really kismet and when i talked to people about how they should pattern their careers i really reach back on like you should continue to follow the things that are most interesting in front of you at any one point in time. So my origin story was I was working for the Environmental Protection Agency, mostly doing enforcement work. And a good buddy from college was working for San Francisco Mayor Willie Brown. And is this pre-Peace Corps or post-Peace Corps? Because you did that too, right? This is post-Peace Corps. So college- So you were going to leave that out. That feels like an important part of the story. That's an Adam Browning origin story, but I don't know if it's a boat solar origin story. But actually, they have come full circle because I am also on the board of an awesome organization called Power for All, which is really about providing electricity through distributed solar to the nearly around 1 billion people in this world that don't have any electricity at all. And uh, sort of the boat solar for really the other part of the world. So it is interesting how your various threads really come back together later on in life. But the boat solar origin story was my friend David Hochschild. He had just gotten solar on his house and solar was nine bucks a watt. And he was really excited about this cool new technology or not new, but really cool technology that had a lot to offer when it comes to climate, but was really expensive. And He was like, hey, let's try to figure out how to get this on City Hall. And I, at the time, didn't know anything about solar, but had been spending a lot of time really finding smokestacks and the idea of trying to like really just jump over this, like regulate emissions and go to zero emissions and figuring out a way to make that happen was really viscerally appealing. So we looked at this idea. We worked with the city supervisors to put a ballot initiative that would authorize a $100 million revenue bond to do solar and energy efficiency for city-owned buildings throughout San Francisco. Mark Leno was our champion, as well as we couldn't have done this without then-city supervisor Gavin Newsom, who was a true champion. And this was really my first introduction to politics. I'd never really done anything really political. So we worked to get that ballot initiative, Prop B, on the ballot, which was a huge introduction to city politics. And then we organized, we had armies of volunteers. We did analyses, we did polling around what would compel people around this. And it was really clean air. That was our biggest message. And so it ended up winning with like 74% of the vote, which was a really high measure. We had signs throughout the city, vote solar. That was our URL for Prop B, and that was what became the URL and the name of the org afterwards. Because after that $100 million solar bond won, the model was that we would spend that money to put solar and energy efficiency on city-owned buildings and then use the avoided energy costs to pay down the bond. And so it would develop clean energy technology, be cost-neutral from a taxpayer perspective, and help commercialize the clean energy technology. So we then got calls. We had New York Times, we got calls from cities around the country saying, how can we do this here? 
And so with a vision of trying to really scale the solar industry, we quit our jobs and started a nonprofit devoted to really building as much solar through city-led initiatives as possible. We quickly realized that the real key wasn't necessarily the will at the city level, it was the regulatory and policy infrastructure at the state level. So very rapidly reorganized around doing state-level policies in order to grow the solar industry with the underlying premise of in order to commercialize solar, we had this wonderful technology that could deliver power without emissions, but it was way too expensive. And what we needed to do was build a lot of expensive solar in order to get to cheap solar. And we had analysis that showed parallels with other technologies, why this would in fact be the case. And I'll have to say like over the last 20 years, this was an awesome place where the premise really lived up to its promise. Because as you know, the history of solar development has been, as the scale has grown, the costs have come down radically. And what is it that's driving down those costs as the scale grows? There's definitely been a lot of technology enhancements and growth, but it was there's really no one silver bullet. It wasn't like there was this technological step-level change. There was a lot of process-level change on the thinness of the silicon wafers, of just the ability through scale to really, for both the materials as well as the processing, to bring down costs. A big problem in the early days was there was seven solar-grade silicon manufacturing facilities around the world, and those were principally built to serve the semiconductor industry. And the solar industry was really just built on the off-spec material from the semiconductor industry. And so you needed to have this like long-term guaranteed demand driver in order to kick the manufacturing facilities up that next level to build enough silicon capacity to service the solar industry. That was why you had a good chunk of time in the earlier days where there was so much effort on like non-silicon solar. And there were a lot of technology experiments. You've heard of Solyndra. The whole premise behind Solyndra was that silicon was way too expensive. You needed to find a non-silicon path forward. So these were just elements of learning through the industry as it scaled up. Now, with bifacial modules, there's been a lot of definite, real, serious enhancements. But throughout the entire module, to racking, to the software that drives it all, to the tracking systems, like each one of those has both scaled in efficiency as well as come down in costs through really through learning through doing. So for me, this is also a window to one of the other debates that you often have around climate is around research and development and firm believer in having strong R&D budgets from the federal government. The history of solar has really shown like through deployment, through massive amounts of deployment, like that bridges a gap that you can't take from like a lab bench. Like you do that through deployment, not through just pure R&D. And so from an organizational standpoint, what is the mission? Our mission now, early days, was to make solar cheap. And the first 10 years of everything that we did to first focus on rooftop solar, and then eventually onto utility-scale solar, establishing renewable portfolio standards, establishing rooftop solar markets, making it 
available to people to be able to put solar on their roof, plug it into the grid, have access to the grid and get fair compensation through net metering and right fair tariffs to grow that rooftop solar and then utility scale solar industry. So I would say that first mission was to make solar cheap. And I really thought at that point in time that once you pass that barrier of cost competitiveness, then just by the pure gravitational pull, I'd work myself out of a job and it'd be game over. It turns out that that is absolutely not the case. There are a lot of entrenched interests that are still pushing back against the path forward of saving money through cleaner energy sources. And so our activities, as well as our mission, has evolved at the same time. And so our mission now is that we want to see a 100% clean energy future, and we want it to be a just one. We want to really think and interrogate who is benefiting through clean energy deployment, who is participating, and want to ensure that everybody is able to participate in and benefit from this radical transition to a clean energy economy equally. So our mission has evolved to that point. And just for context, in terms of the work at Vote Solar, is it United States only, or is it a global purview? And is it solar only, or is it every clean source of energy? We focus just on the U.S., and that's partly just in our mission, but it's also what we know. We have enough difficulty figuring out how to do in the U.S. to really understand the energy system as well as the politics. So much of what we do, we are part like a tech regulatory expertise oriented shop, but then we're matched with a campaign face, a grassroots. So we engage, we try to figure out what are the right policies to pursue, and then you never win just because you're right. You have to build a bespoke campaign that understands the decision makers who they are, who they listen to, and builds a campaign that meets the politics of the moment. So this is just to say that we stay focused in the U.S. because I understand to the extent that one can, California politics, and you can figure out Georgia politics, but I really have no idea how to make change in, say, Vietnam or France, for example. So we have enough to do in front of us here in the United States. Jake, as I went on, I forgot the other parts of your question. Oh, the other one was if it's only solar or whether you're also focusing on other sources of clean energy as well, because you mentioned the clean energy in your mission. We do not advocate against any other clean energy resource, but we do focus on solar for a couple of reasons. One, really, as a part of our theory of change, we think we need to disintermediate the decision makers. Right now, utility companies have had the ability to make better decisions for their customers forever. We need to take away the power of making those bad decisions from the people that have been making those bad decisions. The awesome thing about solar, this is where we got our first start and our first niche, is that you didn't have to get the utilities to do something different. You just had to ask them to get out of the way. And this power of individual choice that solar provides almost a unique access to really sort of resets that power dynamic in terms of metaphorically as well as actually when we look at who makes the decisions on energy going forward. So we lead with solar, but our success, we're looking for, again, 100% clean energy, and that will not be 100% solar. So we have a program called grid modernization where we really focus on how do we build that grid of the future that integrates 
high levels of renewable energy and does so that keeps reliability that our modern economy is built upon. So we love wind, peanut butter and jelly, solar and wind go together great. Storage is clearly a technology that is going to make this all work going forward. My latest focus really has actually been on demand response, something that can really introduce an enormous amount of flexibility into the system that looks like battery storage, but is really just about the customer's ability to change their electricity usage profile and get compensated for being good grid citizens. And so out here in California, we've had an awful summer with these heat waves that we actually did have some rolling blackouts back in August that were really associated with gas plants going offline and not coming online. But if you look at what went on, like it was actually conservation and demand response that kept the lights on for several days when we had the same types of grid conditions as when we did actually have the blackouts. So there's an enormous ability to lower grid costs for everybody and really automate individuals' ability to again, lower the amount of energy needed and provide a lot of flexibility to the entire system through much more sophisticated and automated demand response programs. So you ask, you know, do we do only solar? We focus on solar. It's a charismatic megafauna. People love solar. It pulls through the roof. We think it can and should be a leading source of energy generation going forward. But no, to make this all work, we need much more than solar. And so we do advocate for a clean, flexible, workable grid that is both clean as well as delivers on the reliability that we need. And I'm sure tactically, like when we get into some of the specific initiatives or projects of like trying to get this policy enacted in this state or overturn this one or that kind of thing, there's kind of like sub-success metrics. But if you pull it up a few levels and you just look at like over one year, over five years, over 10 years, how are we doing as an organization, given that the mission is 100% clean energy and your purview is solar, what are the key metrics or success criteria that you look at over time to know if you're doing the right stuff? Honestly, like the word incrementalist gets such a bad rap in a lot of places. But when we think about like our history here in California, we first established like a 10% renewable standard, and then it went to 20%, then it went to 33%, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. And it went to 33%, but an accelerated timeline. Then we went to a requirement that 50% of our resources come from renewable energy resources. And then a couple of years ago, after we had really got things moving, worked out a lot of the commercialization of a lot of the technology went to 100% in California back in 2018. Then Hawaii had done it first, California done it second. Now we've got nine states with 100% clean energy requirements. And that now covers about nearly one in three people living in this country live in a state where carbon-based electricity is illegal or will be legally phased out with compliance deadlines and penalties for non-compliance. So we didn't start with that as like the first proffer of a goal, but that is where we have ended up with so many of the, in the large part of this country. So I stay that to say like, how do we measure success? We measure success by internally finally winning on that 100% clean energy, just and clean energy vision. 
but the steps to get there are going to be ragged. They are not going to be smooth. And so right now we look at gigawatts of energy provided by renewables. We look at numbers of consumers that have their solar rights made available to them that are have the full suite of policies that allow them to connect to the grid and choose to go solar, whether it's on their own roof or through a community solar program. And we measure that against that path to a hundred percent clean energy by 2050. Like that's on the order of like 2000 gigawatts of solar. You'll have to have about an average of 60 gigawatts per year of solar deployed from now until then in order to get there. And so while we've established a lot of cool goalposts, the current deployment rate is not at the level of actually yet of achieving success. So that was a long and discursive way of saying that this is not going to be linear. It's really going to be exponential is the way that it has to be. But it sounds like, if I'm hearing right, that although you are pushing primarily for solar, that in some cases, or maybe even often, it sounds like the best way to get there is to get policies in place that mandate for things like clean energy. So I guess, one, am I hearing that right? And then two, if that's true, how much of what you're doing is solo as an organization versus collaborating with the wind people and the other renewable energy sources? We set state-level policy for a renewable portfolio standard or a renewable energy standard or a clean energy standard. Yeah, that will be open to both solar as well as wind. And I have a firm belief that solar is going to have a huge part of it. I mean, if you look at ERCOT in Texas, where they don't have a renewable energy standard, but if you look at their interconnection queue, they've got a ton of wind on right now. But the rest of it right now in their interconnection queue is almost all solar. The economics of solar have gotten so compelling, especially in really these high solar insulation states. We're seeing solar contracts that are at or under two cents per kilowatt hour over 20, 25 years. That's getting near too cheap to meter territory. So I think, again, solar is a charismatic focal point. It will definitely play a huge role going forward. But as long as we reduce the carbon emissions, as long as we build a new energy system that is both clean and just, it doesn't really matter to me personally how much of that is solar versus how much of that is wind. We're talking orders of magnitude so much more than we have right now. There's plenty for everybody. And I'm going to start talking over my head technically, but from what I can gather from having a number of these kinds of discussions, it seems like as solar proliferates, given that the sun isn't always shining, that there's some intermittency issues where until things like long duration storage are cracked, end up needing to turn to, I don't know if it's called baseload power or peaker plants or things like that, dirty energy sources to shoulder the load in between. Is that true? And how do you think about that both now and looking into the future? There are numerous studies from NREL or there was an interesting one recently put out by GridLab, the 2035 report, where they make a deeply considered, very analytical case that getting to 90% clean energy, even on a taking into account the generating profiles of wind and solar, and assuming like current battery technology right now, we can get there without brand new technology. That last 
will require some significant enhancements, likely in that long duration storage to make up for seasonal differences. I'm not a technologist per se. I do not have a PhD in the chemistry of, but I, from my perspective, is that we push as hard and as fast as we can to get to that 90%, and then we can work out that last jump once we get there. Having all the answers right now is no reason to not start on this journey and not continue to move towards the endpoint that you want to get to. I'm no expert on solar objections, and certainly, I mean, it seems like unequivocally it should be part of the mix, so I'm not advocating any way that it shouldn't, but I've also heard people squawk a little bit about the panels having a life cycle and then that over time, as solar proliferates, there being a waste and recycling problem. Is that a legitimate concern, and how do you think about that? A great question. So there are no moving parts on the solar panels, like it's a solid-state technology. So they generally come warranted around 25 years, and there's plenty of solar panels that have been in operation a lot longer than that. The original cells invented at Bell Labs back in 55 or so are still operative. So there's plenty of data and resource to see that these can have a long-term operability. That said, especially with the maybe earlier generations of systems with that may have had problems with the ceiling and like, yes, we are going to see solar come to its operational endpoint. But most of the, I mean, the materials are eminently recyclable. SIA as an industry has a commitment to, I'm blanking on the term for it all, but essentially them being a part of a circular economy, especially the ones like that have the cadmium telluride are required to have manufacturers end use responsibility. So I think with appropriate focus and intention on recyclability, this is a problem that can and should be, it's eminently solvable. I will say, I do think that solar is of all the different options for generating electricity is the, while it does have its impacts, it's the least bad of the options. And so everyone's going to have some sort of bad impact. And I believe solar has one of the smallest bad footprint, shall we say. I have one other pet question before we get into more of the nuts and bolts of what you guys do, but that's around, I might mess up the word, but is it perscovite or some new advancements in solar technology that are being worked on that I've heard a little bit about, but not a lot? I'm just curious where that fits into the mix in your view, if at all. I am sure there is somebody somewhere in some Caltech or MIT in your neighborhood that is working on something radically transformative, and it could be perscovites. I've been hearing about them for a long time, especially back in the early days. We used to get faxes at the office of like everybody trying to tell us about their new technology. And I am hopeful that there somebody makes a breakthrough. I think, however, the important thing to know is we can get where we need to go without a fundamental change. Like the current technology for solar, again, works pretty awesome. And again, delivering electricity at way cheaper than building a new coal or natural gas plant right now in the sunnier parts of the country. So here's hoping that those radically change everything. But even if they don't, we don't need to despair. 
Okay, so without your vote solar hat on, if you just turn around and you say, okay, now I'm just objectively looking at the solar landscape and I don't happen to work in any organization, a company or a nonprofit, et cetera, I just believe in solar and want solar to proliferate as quickly and as widespread as it can. Where are the blockers? Where are the gaps? Where are the highest points of leverage that can unlock faster progress? I mean, you say take off my vote solar hat, and it's hard to well, do. Because I didn't want you to lead with just stuff that you guys do. I wanted you to first talk objectively about the whole landscape, and then we'll get into where you guys sit and which levers you guys focus on. Totally get that. And I'll just say, though, that I've founded an organization based upon trying to do exactly as you say. Like, so they're aligned. Like you've chosen within vote solar to align with this, with whatever your first answer is. And that, I buy that. Go as fast and as far as we can. And so if there were something else magic out there, I would be doing it. I do think most energy decisions are made at the state, not the federal level. We have a, or have had a commitment to federalism when it comes to setting energy policy for the most part in this country. This has been both a blessing as well as a curse. It would have been nice to just solve this at the federal level once and for all. But the fact is, at the state level, you are much closer to democracy. You can actually make change because you are much closer to the levers of power. And you can take advantage of the fact that solar has supermajority support from both sides of the aisle polled across the country. There's not a place in this country where that isn't true. So focusing on the state level is where decisions are made and where your power is greatest. And so I think that is why we focus almost exclusively at the state level. And I think that that's actually the right place to do it. Your question is, is who is blocking and how do we get there? I mean, there are- Or what is blocking? Yeah, just like, where the knots? It's in power. It's in power building. It's in, there are hundreds of gigawatts of coal that are still online that we would save lives and money if they were shut down today and rebuilt with solar and clean energy. There is a legacy system of utility companies that are invested in continuing to make money out of those systems. And until we can disintermediate their decision-making power, they're going to keep going in that way. So I think it's really illustrative, like what recently happened in Ohio. I don't know if you've been following this, but FBI recently made some arrests, indicted the former Speaker of the House there over a bill, HB6, that had repealed the state's energy standard and delivered billions of dollars worth of energy support to some coal and some nuke plants in the state. And it was later revealed as per the indictment alleged that these energy companies had given $60 million to the Speaker of the House to further distribute to other policymakers in order to, again, repeal that clean energy mandate and to provide these monopolies with like billions of dollars of price support for out-of-market generation. This is just a maximalist example of what we see around the country all the time. Like the monopolies are going to monopoly. They put together as much political power as they can in order to preserve as much economic benefit through their past business practices as they can. So fundamentally, changing that dynamic is really the key to what we try to do as our organization. And if I was able to make a case for step levels of differential growth, like that is building that type of political power and exercising it is where we need to go on a state-by-state basis in order to 
get to that clean energy future. And what percentage of the playbook carries over from state to state and what percentage of it is custom on a per state basis? So Tip O'Neill made the case that all politics are local and it is truly the case. Like there are baseline strands, but the winning arguments that we see in a California are different than what you would see in a South Carolina or in a Georgia. Clean air is awesome. Jobs are awesome. But the case that you make, the decision makers really is different in different places. And I think that's really important to understand when you go around trying to build power around the outcomes that you want to see. You need to really build those relationships with the local partners and make a case that is relevant to the politics of the place. And then what's an example kind of tactically? So if you were going to bite off an initiative in a state to bring a certain thing about, I mean, is it more like a campaign where you say our goal is this kind of subjective, we want to get this policy in place, or we want to get that policy altered or repealed, or that kind of thing. And then here's a series of big things, small things, and everything in between to bring that about over this period of time? Or how does it work? So I stated a little earlier, we have our team, we've got a deep bench of energy wonks, people that make the case with math, with numbers, whether it be an analysis of why particular legislation is important, or more likely we go in and we really work on the regulatory side from the public utility commissions, public service commissions. So you need to like be solid in your factual basis for why we should think that an investment this way is better than an investment that way. But you never win just because you're right. So you really need to like the other half of our team is press, digital, and we hire campaign organizers that build long-term deep relationships with organizations that live in a state that exist in the state and that represent the people that stand to benefit. And so you then really try to build as large and broad and diverse and strong of a table as possible, get a lot of agreement behind. So we never go into a place and say, here's the solution that we think you all should do. It's really the other way around. We establish those connections with the local organizations, with the frontline communities, the frontline groups, and say, what are the problems that you're looking to solve? And how can we help in finding those solutions? So it is really, we call this an inside and an outside strategy. The inside game is really around that regulatory analysis. And the outside game is around building that campaign infrastructure that identifies the problem, identifies the desired solution set, and provides a lot of support and pressure on policymakers to have their interests be heard and to get the job done. So it's actually fairly similar whether you're doing a regulatory or whether you're doing a legislative effort. You still have to have that real public participation component where you bring the people who are most impacted to the table, have them identify what it is that they want to see, and then work to bring those solutions to the policymakers and demand that they pay attention. This is one of the worlds that was most foreign to me prior to the last couple of years. And I've been spending time in it because if you care about bringing about change and the clean energy transition and averting horrible symptoms and effects from the changing climate, then, I mean, it's inevitable that policy plays an important role. So, I mean, I've been spending time here, but it's fascinating to hear how it works because I haven't ever 
seen how the sausage is made in that regard at all before I started having all these discussions in the last couple of years. You raise a great point. So you're a tech entrepreneur, you come out of that world. And if you have a better mousetrap, you can sell it. And that's really not the case necessarily in this world where policy really is everything. There is no level playing field. There is no free market out there where technologies compete without constraint upon their merits. There are a whole lot of externalized costs that are foisted upon everybody else. There's a very tilted playing field with really powerful players that push with a lot of weight to the outcomes that they that most benefit them, even if it's at the detriment of all other ratepayers and citizens. And so that's what we're fighting. This isn't just a technology access battle. This really is a, what do we value? What do we want to see in this world? And how can we best deliver it? Who benefits? Who do we center as the beneficiaries? And how do we build campaigns that deliver on those results? So I remember like back in 2004 or so when we got our start and solar was really starting to like accelerate and a business partner and I went up and down Sand Hill Road just talking to all these VCs that were starting to invest in the green economy. It was a very similar conversation where, again, they were very used to places where if you have something better, you could just sell it. And that was a lesson that wasn't learned well then. And I don't think is still fully internalized by everyone even now. And if you look back over the years, what's one example that sticks out of a win that you're particularly proud of as an organization and how did it come about? And that covers a lot of expanse. So we already went over sort of our origin story of that seminal. It could be a micro win, could be a macro win. It doesn't need to be necessarily some big fundamental world changing thing. It might just be like Tactically, we did this thing that was small, but was super important and had a big impact. You have editorial freedom to go wherever your mind takes you. We talked a little bit about how we started out in some places with really low renewable energy standards and then gradually increased them year by year in different places. I think that general story came really last year to a pinnacle in New York. We We had been working in the state of New York for many, many years on establishing solar standards, solar programs, and incrementally increasing the goal. And really, the coalition just really got incredibly, once sort of the solar industry had been started, costs were coming down, really had a incredibly broad coalition with a lot of new and really important leadership coming from environmental justice advocates who fully led the charge in finally getting, I think, one of the most forward-thinking climate bill across in the state of New York. That was last year in 2019. So the story, again, behind this is a lot of work by a lot of people to first establish the foundations, build a movement based upon a lot of success, but then a lot of vision for something bigger and quite different. And then finally, you have a seminal moment where everything comes together and you're able to get something across the finish line after years of work. And then now, Stephen Roundtree on our New York team, he's been appointed to one of the boards charged with implementing state law. One of the sayings that we have here is that the passage of major legislation, your work doesn't end with the passage of major legislation. That's really the beginning, the implementation side, making sure that it all gets implemented in the right way. 
so that real people are benefited in real places is really pretty critical. So this ends up being full life cycle support. And this may be a tough question to answer given the, your already stated kind of decentralized nature of addressing the issue, at least domestically. But if you could wave your magic wand and change one thing that would make your job easier in helping solar proliferate, what would it be? So like a federal standard? Could be anything. Could be a standard. Could be consumer sentiment. Could be government R&D. You tell me. You have a magic wand, so you could change anything. I would order three more magic wands with that one. (laughs) As much as we have benefited on doing this all state by state, I would love for us to be able to like take the fact that super majorities of people in this country, we're talking 90 percentiles, both R&D, want to see this transition happen. We are now in a state where finally climate action is one of the top considerations of voters. I would love to see us uh, really have a federal law that just brings us to the promised land once and for all. It is really difficult. I don't know you're going to need a magic wand for that, but it is the right. A law that says what? I would absolutely have just a federal clean energy standard. So a requirement that we just transition away from carbon-based electricity. Bingo. I mean, we can go into climate politics and the carbon politics and the like, which we certainly don't need to do. But I think a federal clean energy standard would solve for a lot of problems. Awesome. Well, this has been such a great, fascinating discussion. Is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have or any parting words for listeners? I think you've covered a lot of great questions. I would just say that as for our listeners, I would encourage you all to join Vote Solar. Fundamental to our theories of change are participation. Everywhere we go, what happens is that we tee up decision points and we need activists to make their voice heard loudly and make their choices clear to policymakers. That is fully the game. And policy change is a contact sport. So we would love your support if you just go to votesolar.org and join us. We'll put you to work changing clean energy policies and politics in your state. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Adam, for coming on the show and helping educate me and listeners on this important topic. And best of luck to you and the whole Vote Solar team. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note, that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.